This morning, I want to talk about this right here. We call it the Bible, the scriptures, the writings, the scrolls. How would you describe this to somebody else? How do you think about it yourself? Would you call the Bible a book? Is that, is that really what the Bible is? Is the Bible a book? If it is, it's the most interesting book in the world. It's, it's a one of a kind. I mean, it has a story from beginning to end, but usually when I think of a book, I think a book has an author, but this book has 40 different authors, people writing at different eras of history. So to say it is a book, well, it actually, I guess, maybe a way to say it would be a collection of books. 66 different books make up the Bible. Now, those, those books, you could think of them as chapters, but really each one of them has its own chapters. They are different books written with different purposes. And now, that doesn't even work, though, a collection of books, because when I think of a collection of books, I think of, like, the best nonfiction or the best short stories of 2016. I think of books that all came out at the same time in some kind of collection or anthology. Maybe that would be a way to say the Bible. But maybe the Bible is actually more like a time capsule. Anybody remember hearing about time capsules when you were kids? Anybody dig a hole and bunch of, put a bunch of stuff in it down in the ground, right? And somebody in the future is going to, like, find those uh, VHS tapes, except we're not going to know how to play them anymore. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like a time capsule, right? We're going to represent a certain time to a future time. See, I know it is a book, and I know it's a collection of books, but really what the Bible has that nothing else has in the entire world is it has things that happened at different eras throughout history, and then they get added together. It's like we pick up the time capsule from one time, we add what's happening in our time, and it gets passed on to the next time. In fact, you've got four boxes there on your handout. If you're taking notes here this morning, I want to give to you the, the four eras as Jesus would break it down. The four times that the Bible gives us a picture into God's dealings with men at four different times throughout history. And as you study those different times and then you compare them to our time, they're all telling the same story. There's no other book or collection of books like that that's working throughout time of human history. So Jesus, when he's talking to some of his disciples, two of them on the road to Emmaus, you could write down Luke 24, he calls them fools because they didn't know that he was going to die and rise again because the Old Testament tells us the good news that there is going to be a Christ who will die and rise again, and he expected these disciples to know it. He says, first of all, from the law. Let's get that down for our first box. Our first box is the law. And the law is five scrolls. Sometimes it's referred to in Greek as the Pentateuch, which means five scrolls. It's the first five books, we would say, of the Bible. And the author of the law is Moses. And, and get this down if you're, if you're taking notes here. The date of the law is in the 1400s B.C. Is our, is our best guess as to when Moses wrote the first five books. So you got five different scrolls, one author, and that gets handed down to Joshua, who takes over from Moses. So as soon as Moses writes it, Everybody, Joshua is supposed to tell everybody what the word of the Lord says. He's supposed to never let the word of the Lord depart from his, anybody remember, depart from his what? His mouth. He's just telling everybody what the law of the Lord says. So as soon as, this is how books work. This is how write, writings work. As soon as they are published, as soon as they are released, people start reading them and running with them. Well, that's what happens, okay? Now, Jesus, when he's talking to these disciples in Luke 24, he says, you should have known it both from the law, and then he says this, the law and the prophets. Let's get that down. That's actually our third box, okay? Not, not our second box. Our third box is the prophets, okay? And, and this is now getting into a wide assortment of different men, even over hundreds of years, who write many different books that speak to many different situations. So we have many authors that would compose these prophets. 
Um, and then the date is a wide-ranging time period. We're going to say all the way from like 800 B.C. to 400 B.C., like 16 different authors writing books that we would refer to today as the major and minor prophets, 17 different books. And so Jesus is saying, if you wanted to know that I was going to die and rise again, if you wanted to read about me, you could have read about me when Moses wrote about me all the way back in 1400 B.C. Or there were all these guys prophesying about me from 800 to 400 B.C. And then one time when Jesus is explaining the gospel, his death and resurrection to his disciples, he says, you could have known about it from the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Let's go back and fill that in as our, as our second box right here, the psalms okay so now jesus is breaking the old testament down into three different categories starting with what moses wrote in the first five books then we've got these prophets over here well there's a lot of other books that tell us the history and some poetic writings well jesus kind of groups those together under the heading of psalms and the most famous author of the psalms would be david but we just read through the psalms this summer at our church and there's all kinds of different authors there's the sons of korah there's asaph moses writes a psalm Solomon writes psalms. There's psalms that it doesn't tell us who the author is. So it's a, it's a broad collection. And if you throw in the wisdom literature, poetic literature, the history of what was happening at the time of David, I mean, the time of David, now we're looking at a time around 1000 B.C. So you're starting to see here, Moses gives us some books. That's 1400 B.C. David gives us some work. That's around 1000 B.C. The prophets write all kinds of things over hundreds of years. That's 800 to 400 B.C. What kind of a book is getting passed down from generation to generation and getting added to every few hundred years and is dominating history? There's nothing like the Bible, but that's not even it. Because after 400 years of silence, then we have, we have the apostles. And we have the work that they wrote that we refer to as the New Testament. Where so much of what was prophesied, what we were looking forward to in the first three time periods of, that we would refer to as the Old Testament, well now we see so much of those prophecies come true in the God who becomes man, Jesus Christ, who lives a perfect life, is born in a certain way, in a certain place, at a certain time, lives for 33 years, dies on the cross in a way that was prophesied and predicted, rises again on the what day that was prophesied? On the third day he comes back so we have the apostles well we have many different eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus many different letters written to churches about how they should live as Christians and then we have the last book the book of Revelation by the apostle John even now making prophecies that are still future to us 2,000 years later. So the, the dates here of the authors is like 45 to 96 AD, first century AD. And then you and I can pick up this time capsule, if you'll work with me here, and we can now see how things that have been prophesied throughout different eras of history are still like headline of the newspaper, cutting edge, relevant to our life right here today in America. There is nothing, whatever we want to call this book, collection of books, this time capsule moving through history to us, there is nothing like this book because this book is written by God, not by men. Okay? Now, turn with me to the text that we're on, John chapter 13, because we're doing a study of the Last Supper. Jesus' final meal with his disciples, where he teaches them what they're going to do after he departs from them. He, he, knows, he knows that this is his September 11th, if you will. I mean, this is the tragic day in Jesus' life where he is betrayed, arrested, falsely accused, beaten, then finally convicted to crucifixion on a cross. Within 24 hours from this Passover meal, Jesus will be the sacrificial lamb dying for your sin. This is the day where everything goes wrong, so to speak, in the life of Jesus. And he says something here that's absolutely fascinating that I don't know we fully comprehend as a church, and I don't think we do a good job explaining it to people outside of the church. Look where we left off last week. John chapter 13, verse 18. 
This is where we're going to pick it up, right where we left off. John chapter 13, verse 18. It says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. So he's going to quote now from the psalm, Psalm 41, verse 9. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Okay, so he quotes an Old Testament passage and he's, that's going to be fulfilled right there in their presence at this dinner. And he says, I want you to underline this. I'd love for you to memorize this. Look at this verse right here. What, look what Jesus says in verse 19. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So Jesus says here in verse 19, I want to tell you something, and I'm going to tell it to you now. I'm going to give you, if you will, a preemptive narrative. I'm going to tell you something before it happens, because later on in time, when you see it happen, I want you to know that I knew it was going to happen, and I want you to believe that I am God. That's what Jesus says at dinner with the disciples. Imagine if you were at dinner with someone. Maybe you were out at a restaurant, or you had them over, and it was like a fancy meal. You were like sitting down at your table to have dinner with this person, and this person began to tell you, so-and-so is going to walk out the door right now. So-and-so is about to say this. Hey, watch out, but this person over here is going to ask for a free refill of their drink right now. They start calling what's going to happen. I mean, someone starts telling you things that are going to happen at your dinner before they happen. You would think maybe you were in the middle of some like live dinner theater where everybody else was in cahoots and they were all acting it out and you were the unknowing person. Like, what's going on around here? But then you start to realize maybe this guy actually knows what's going to happen before it happens. Maybe he actually can see outside of time or even maybe he's in control of time. And so Jesus at this dinner, he tells them two things. And see, it's hard, I think, for us to understand what's happening because we hear the story after the fact. Have you tried to talk about September 11th with people who weren't really old enough to know what was going on at the time? Is that not a frustrating experience? Has it, any, anybody that's uh, my age that, that really remembers September 11th vividly, is it, is it frustrating sometimes when you try to pass it on to the next generation? Because they just don't get it. They don't understand like, we could tell them, hey, here's what happened. The, the terrorists, they flew planes into our buildings, and the, and the towers fell down, and, and it was this terrible day, and these other heroes of America, they fought back on this airplane, and it crashed in Pennsylvania, and all these brave people went into these towers and got people out before they fell down, and we could tell them that story. But those of us who were, like, there, so to speak, those of us who watched it happen on television, all I remember was chaos and confusion. Anybody else remember that? Like, I remember this overwhelming feeling of why is this happening? Who is doing this to us? And then even the newscasters, it seemed, they didn't know what was going on. And there was all this misreporting and this plane, all of a sudden, you could see it on TV. This plane just flew in. Another plane flew into the second tower. You're watching it happen. You're thinking, what's going to happen next? Does the president know what's going on? Is there anybody in America who knows what's happening right now? It felt like the whole country was out of control. And even in the weeks to follow, so many people, like I said before, so many people showed up at church the Sunday after September 11th. Do you remember that? Did it happen at the church you were attending? Were you attending church at that time? I was like, where did all these people come from? It was like there was this era, uh, this aura, excuse me, of uncertainty all over America. I remember like armed soldiers walking around the airports and all of a sudden these new security precautions happening at all the airports and these lines. And back then it felt really serious, like, whoa, what's going on? Like, were we going to get attacked again? You heard like, like there was chatter that maybe this was going to happen or that was going to happen. And people are throwing out all these rumors. Nobody really knew. And here's Jesus on the most important night of his life. And he's saying, hey, whoever I get the piece of bread to, that's the guy who's going to betray me. Hey, Peter, 
You think you're with me? You think you're ready to lay down your life for me? Hey, before the rooster crows later on tonight, you're gonna deny me three times. Here's Jesus in his tragic chaos moment to, to the disciples. It's gonna seem crazy and out of control. And Jesus is saying, hey, later on, John, when you're writing this down, when you're thinking about it, I just want you to know that I knew everything that was gonna happen and I was 100% in control. And we've just heard the story later. We just know that Judas betrayed him and Peter denied him and that Jesus died on the cross. And what John's trying to do here in our text is he's trying to put, him, put us as an eyewitness at the dinner where all of a sudden it starts falling apart and you realize this is the night that you're never gonna forget. And look, in the middle of it all falling apart, Jesus is saying, hey, I wanna tell you some things before they happen. I wanna show you something right now. I wanna to reveal to you who I am and who I represent. I represent God and God knows the future. He will tell it to you to prove that he is God. That's what I'm gonna do right now. Because someday when you're thinking about how this night went down, when you're remembering it, I want you to know that I knew and I want you to believe that I am God. And so he gives them two things that are gonna happen. Pick it up with me in verse 21. Here, here's the first one. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, which Jesus says before he's about to say something, you're gonna have a hard time believing, but he wants you to know it's true. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they didn't see this coming. It wasn't clear that like one of them was the turncoat. One of them was the traitor. They didn't see that. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, which we know as John, referring to himself, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And Simon Peter motioned to him, to John, to ask Jesus, because he's right there leaning up next to him, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. And that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, maybe even a whisper here, because they're so close, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. They still don't even connect that Judas is the one who's going to betray him. Not in this moment. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Out into the darkness goes Judas with Satan entering his heart on a mission to betray Jesus. And the significant thing that Jesus wants us to know, even reading the story, now trying to put ourselves, not just as people who come later hearing how the story ended, but now trying to put ourselves in the middle of the story, Jesus wants to tell us, hey, I knew who was going to betray me. I chose him. I chose him as one of the 12. I chose him that from the beginning, I knew he was going to betray me me the entire time. And I want you to know, Jesus is saying to you this morning through his eyewitness, John, I want you to know that I knew. And I want this prophecy, this thing that I can do where I tell you the future. I want that to be a reason that you believe in me, Jesus is saying. And so it's unclear to everybody else in the room, but Jesus says it so that later they would get it. And here the apostle John is now recounting it for us, saying, I got it. Jesus knew the whole time what Judas was going to do. He called it. You won't believe it. Before he got backstabbed, when nobody else saw it coming, Jesus told us it was going to happen. He told us who was going to do it. He knew the entire time. Now pick it up with me again. Jump down to verse 36. Here's another interaction that happens because Jesus says he's going to go away and Peter doesn't like this idea that he's going to go away. So Simon Peter said to him, Simon Peter, we love him because of his bold speech on behalf of the disciples. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Hey, I don't want to just move past the fact that you said in a little while you're going to go away and we can't come. Hey, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That's exactly what we would expect Peter to say. He's all in. He's ready. Hey, if, 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 we're, gonna, if we're gonna go out, I'm going out with you, Jesus. I, if you, we're gonna lay our lives down, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Really? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And if you've read the Gospels, if you've ever finished reading the Gospel of John or Matthew, Mark, Luke, they tell us that Peter ended up doing what? Denying Jesus three times. And after he denied him a third time, what happened? The rooster did what? The rooster, it crowed. How do you call that? How do you look at a guy who's saying to you, I'm ready to lay down my life for you and say, no, you're actually going to deny me three times and then the rooster's going to crow. And then that is exactly what happens. The only way you can predict the future like that is if you know the future. And the only way you can know the future like that is if you control the future, if you are the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth who does whatever you please. That's Jesus. And John wrote it down this way so that you and I would read about Jesus calling his own shots with his disciples, Judas and Peter, who we're going to read about the betrayal. We're going to read about the denial. In fact, the Gospel of John ends with this amazing conversation between Jesus and Peter as he now kind of brings him back after the denial and says to him three times, do you love me? Like a question for every time he denied him. So all of this is going to play out as we keep studying the gospel of John. But the emphasis this morning is Jesus prophesying before it happens. And that that is a reason not only to believe in Jesus, but to make sure that we worship Jesus and to listen to Jesus Christ. And it's not just that he called it on the night before it happened. Go back to chapter 6. Go all the way back to John chapter 6 with me. Okay, you got four more boxes there. So what I want to show you now is that this prophecy of Jesus that he makes on this night before he dies, that Judas, we're going to focus in specifically this morning on just the prophecy that Judas is going to betray him. We see this in every stop in our time capsule, if you will. This isn't just something Jesus said on the night before he died. No, this is a recorded prophecy throughout Scripture. Jesus just didn't know it 24 hours before. No, he knew it hundreds of years before that this was going to happen. And it's recorded for us to later see and believe. Look what Jesus said all the way back in John chapter 6. This is now well before the night when Judas would betray him. Look at the end of chapter 6, verse 70. This is after many of the disciples fall away, many turn away from following Jesus. And Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, you guys aren't going to leave also. And Peter says, where would we go? Where else would we go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go but you? And then Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke, this is now John's commentary on Jesus' prophecy. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Yeah, on the night when Satan enters into him and he went out into the darkness of night to physically go betray him. And here it is. This is now just not even right before it happens. This is well before it happens. Jesus is saying, even from when I chose him as one of the 12, I knew he would betray me. So in all four of these boxes, we're going to see a prophecy about the betrayal of Judas. So in our our second level now, our apostles box, we want to put John chapter 6, verses 70 and 71. That should be coming up here on the screen. In our apostles box, John chapter chapter 6, verses 70 and 71. Here, and you could read the uh, other gospel accounts, you could see that there's, there's a prediction throughout the gospels that Ju- Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. And Judas is going to become that tragic figure. I mean, I, I, I was talking with some men before the service this morning. I've never known anyone named Judas. Maybe you have, but it's definitely not a, not a common name after, after this one. And poor the other disciple named Judas. All he's known is that he's Judas, not Iscariot. That's all, that's all he's ever known for. Poor guy, man. 
I mean, we know, I mean, he's the tragic figure. He's the example of the apostate, the one who falls away from Christ, the one who ends up hanging himself. And what did he sell Jesus out for? What was the, what was the price that bought the life of Jesus Christ? What was it? Anybody know? 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. That's Judas. He lives in infamy. Now, in the Psalms, if you go back to our second box here, write down Psalm 41, verse 9. You put that in the second box because that's the prophecy, and you could even put down that that's quoted in John 13, verse 18. John's putting it together for us there. He's saying, hey, not only did Jesus call it, but the scripture is fulfilled. David called it a thousand years before Jesus, when David says that he who I dip this bread is going to rise up and strike his heel against me, David is writing something in Psalm 41 that John is now saying, can you see the connection? Look all the way back into the Psalms a thousand years beforehand, and specifically, it talks about dipping the bread and giving it to the one who's going to betray you, and that's what Jesus did. So John is making a connection for us about this betrayal. See, David is often referred to as the king of Israel. And he becomes throughout the Psalms many times as David describes his own agonies, his own betrayals, his own thoughts. David is really speaking not only perhaps of himself in the context there around 1000 BC, but a lot of times it refers to the greater David, the king of Israel who was to come, who was to come in the line of David. A lot of times David, when he's even writing about his own situation, it's really a prophecy referring to Jesus Christ. It's amazing how many prophecies of David's references there are that refer to Jesus. It's overwhelming how many there are. A thousand years beforehand. Go read Psalm 22 and tell me that's not talking about Jesus dying on the cross for your sin. And David wrote it a thousand years before Jesus. David had confidence that when he died, he would still be in the presence of the Lord, enjoying pleasures forevermore, because he says in Psalm 16, verse 10, the Holy One, the Anointed One, the Messiah of God will not undergo corruption. He will not see decay. He's referring to someone who's going to die, but not stay dead a thousand years before it happens. The prophecy of Scripture is overwhelming. God is showing off. He is telling you what's going to happen before it happens because he wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that this book is uniquely inspired and written by him and the way he's showing you, his fingerprints are all over it because he's telling you what's going to happen in a different era of time before it happens. Why are we not as impressed with this as we should be as Christians? And why don't we use prophecy as like hard evidence and a straightforward line of reasoning when we're out there talking to people who don't believe in Jesus? Why aren't we start telling them about, hey, do you know that Jesus called his shots before he took them? He knew that Jesus knew who was going to betray him and he still washed his feet. You know that Peter was good. He knew he was going to deny him and he came alongside of him and he loved him. Do you know that Jesus knew he was going to die the whole time and he kept saying it over and over and everybody was confused about it. And then after he died, everybody started to understand he knew it the whole time. I mean, this prophecy stuff is a compelling evidence that God is behind whatever we want to call this, this Bible. Go to Zechariah. Turn with me to some, some passages maybe we don't normally go to. The book of Zechariah in the Old Testament, okay? Zechariah chapter 11. So this would now be in our third box. This would be in our prophets section. Zechariah 11 verses 12 and 13, okay? Zechariah is writing hundreds of years before the time of Jesus Christ. And he says in Zechariah chapter 11 verse 12, then I said to them, Please read this with me. It's on page 798. If you got one of our books, I'll give you a second to turn there. 798. I want you to see this, okay? And if, and if you're thinking in your mind right now, well, I, I heard that they put the Bible together in 1611 when they came up with the King James Version in English. 
Or I heard that they put the Bible together at the Council of Nicaea way back in 325. If, if that's what you're hearing from, from other sources out there, you just need to realize that's ridiculous. We have ancient manuscripts in the original languages. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls of the Old Testament in Hebrew. We have manuscripts like the Codex Sinaiticus, which is from the same time period as the Council of Nicaea, that is a copy of the New Testament in ancient Greek. These scriptures, Moses was immediately recognized by the people of Israel. The writings of of David were immediately taken as scripture. The prophets were immediately received by the people as the word of the Lord. And when Jesus and the apostles are on the scene, not only do they substantiate the entire Old Testament, but even if you read Paul's writings and you read Peter's writings, they even talk about each other's writings while they're still alive as if they are scripture and you should take them as the very word of God. So this idea that the Bible is some history hatchet job that we're putting together later and we threw out these other books and we kind of chose the books we want, that is a secular lie. There is no truth to that. Yeah, the Council of Nicaea recognized books of Scripture, but those books had already been recognized for hundreds of years by the time the Council of Nicaea canonized them. They were recognized as they were read by the original recipients as this being a word from God. So Zechariah was written hundreds of years before there's ever a guy named Judas. And in chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, it says this, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price, at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Are you kidding me? That's the price that they paid Judas. What did Judas do after he had betrayed Jesus, after he saw what happened, after he had the 30 pieces of silver? He threw them away. Where did he throw them? Into the what? The temple called hundreds of years before it happened. That's God showing off so that you would be impressed here this morning, so that you would believe, that you would worship, that you would realize there's nothing like this. I hear all the time people say, well, I'm not really a book reader. Well, great, because this isn't really a book. This is, this is God revealing himself to you throughout history. It's a collection of books, I guess we could call it. Scripture, writings, scrolls, whatever. I mean, use whatever word you want. This is God saying, I'm here and you need to believe me. And here's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to play with time. I'm going to tell you things hundreds of years before they happen in a way that, that is just not comparable. Okay? Now, some people are going to say, well, the Bible's just one religious book. There's many faiths. There's many religious books. Okay? We skipped something a little bit earlier that I, that I want to go back to right now. It, it, Let's compare the Bible to the Quran. Anybody ever read the Quran before? Anybody ever checked it out? Okay, this is, this is the book of Islam, okay? Let's, now, let's, we have our four pieces of uh, uh, chart here. Let's look at the Quran. Where did the Quran come from, okay? If you wanted to put a box somewhere for the Quran, the author of the Quran is re referred to as the prophet Muhammad, and he got his message that became the Quran that he wrote over the course of his lifetime from the angel Gabriel is the claim. And the date of this is 609 to 632 AD. Okay. I don't know if you've ever read the Quran or not before, but it, it reads like a religious book. It, it reads really, but it's one man claiming he got a revelation from one angel at one time. Let's put up all the other times now that the Quran also got added to, that the prophecies in the earlier part of the Quran were confirmed later. Let's put up those other boxes. Oh yeah, there are no other boxes for the Quran. It's one man claiming one angel. And thousands of people in the world are following what one man says from one angel. There's another religion that's eerily similar to that, and it's the Book of Mormon. Let's check out this. The Book of Mormon. This is now more modern times. This is here in America. Who's the author of the Book of Mormon? Anybody know? Well, there it is. Joseph Smith. And he says he's not really the author. He says he got these golden plates that were in some language he'd never seen before, but he had the ability to translate these golden plates, and they were given to him by the angel Moroni. And this happened in the 1820s. 
And so now thousands of people are saying that the Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ. And, and if you have to take the two books together and you, you nail them together, they're going to kind of help you interpret one another. That's what the Mormons are, are saying. No, that's not true. It's not true. We don't need another testament of Jesus Christ, especially a testament of Jesus that acts like he is not part of the Trinity, that he is not God. We don't need that. So when you start comparing this to other things that people call religious books, we just need to see that there is no comparison because God does it in one time, confirms it in another time, which then prophesies to the next time, which then confirms that, which then prophesies to the next time, which even goes all the way to prophecies about our time. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Go all the way back to the beginning, to the first uh, scripture. I mean, really, the first revelation from God to man that was recorded was the Ten Commandments. That was really two, two tablets of stone is really how it started. I don't know if you would call the Ten Commandments a book, but, but they were tablets of stone. I mean, that's really the first revelation that then gets expanded into the five scrolls, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law. It's Moses giving the law to the people before they're going to go into the promised land. Deuteronomy is Moses' last words, okay? And Moses says something that is absolutely fascinating in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 19. So that's gonna be in our fourth box right here on the second part of our chart. We've got Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. This is a prophecy about, well, let's just read it. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Read this with me. This is maybe 1,400 years before Jesus Christ. This is maybe 3,400 years ago. Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. So Moses is making prophecies when he writes the first five books. Well, now God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses from among you, from your brothers. And this prophet, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. So just remember, when God gave them the Ten Commandments and God spoke to the people directly, it was so terrifying for the people of Israel to interact with God in that way, to see the thunder and the lightning and the fire, that they said, hey, we don't want to hear straight from God. We would rather have you, Moses, speak on behalf of God to us. And so that's what it's referring to there. Verse 17, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Well, there's going to be a prophet someday like Moses, and he's going to say things, and your entire life is going to be based on whether you listen to this prophet or not. And if you don't listen to the prophet that God sends, who speaks on behalf of God himself, if you don't listen to him, God will require it of you that you didn't listen to this prophet. Now, let me ask you guys here at Compass Bible Church, Huntington Beach, this morning, who do you think the prophet is that Moses is talking about? Could it perhaps be the guy that on the night before he died said, yeah, this guy that I dipped the bread to, he's going to betray me. Hey, see this guy over here? Uh, the guy who seems like he's my biggest supporter, my most loud spokesperson. Yeah, he's going to deny me three times. See, Jesus is a prophet with a capital P. And your life, your eternal soul will live or die based on whether you listen to the prophecies of Jesus or not. That's what Deuteronomy 18 is saying. So there was a prophecy about a prophet 1,400 years before Jesus started showing what was going to happen next at dinner one night. So what are you, how are you and I supposed to respond to this? What are you and I supposed to think about this? Go back to John chapter 13, and let's, let's look at two responses that hopefully you and I will have here this morning. I mean, Jesus says the response, and this is the theme of our preaching all last year. Um, was uh, Jesus says, look back at verse 19 in John 13 with me. Jesus gives what he's expecting people to do based on the ability that not only Jesus has to prophesy there in the moment at the Last Supper, but the ability of all of Scripture to be prophetic, 
to not only give you the prophecy, but to give you the answer to the prophecy in the next era of time. Jesus is expecting this response in verse 19. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may what? What does Jesus want people to do? Believe. Okay. So the reason John records this, the reason Jesus said what he said, he could have just let it play it out. He could have just let Judas betray him. He could have just let Peter deny him. But there was a purpose in telling us beforehand, and the purpose is that you and I would believe that Jesus is God. Or as he says it here, I am he. Prophecy is one of the signs that is designed to cause us to believe in Jesus. So let me ask you this. If we're Christians here this morning, and we do believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Are you and I using prophecy in our conversations with people outside of faith in Jesus Christ? Are we saying that they should believe in Jesus? And one reason they should believe is because the prophecies cannot be explained away. They go throughout time. They prove each other. You have to check out these prophecies. Are we using that in the world around us? I don't, I don't know how effective we are being at speaking confidently that this book, collection of books, time capsule, if you will, this anthology right here confirms itself by prophesying what's going to happen and then in a later period of time written by different men shows us that that is exactly what happened, then makes predictions about what will happen next that are exactly what happened then. What more could we want? than someone telling us the future to prove to us that God wrote this Bible. We need to start using this more and more as a compelling witness with those around us. We should not act like not believing the Bible even makes sense because the prophecies speak clearly. And we should be bold in declaring this. And then it should cause us, I mean, when, if someone can tell you the future, that, that should just inspire awe. And really, since the only one who knows the future is God, this should inspire worship from us. Go to Isaiah chapter 41. Well, hold on, hold on. Before we go to Isaiah 41, look back at verse 19. Sorry, I got ahead of myself there. I'm just getting excited. It says, I am he. Believe that I am he. Go to John chapter 18. Let's just track that phrase, I am he. What could Jesus be referring to when he says, I am he? Well, when Ju that's one of the last things Judas is going to hear before, before he leaves to go betray him. Look what happens when Judas does betray him in John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, that's the end of the, the Lord's prayer there in John 17. That's the end of the whole Last Supper conversation. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book Kidron, where there was a garden. We know it as the Garden of Gethsemane which he and disciples, his disciples entered. Apparently, this was maybe a, a place they went regularly to pray. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. We're getting the mob together. Everybody's grabbing their pitchfork, and we're going to go out to the garden, and we're going to get Jesus. That's what's happening. And Jesus, underline this. Here it is again. He wants you to know that Jesus knows. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, walking into what he already knew was going to go down, he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Very specific words that he already said in verse 19 of chapter 13. And Judas, who betrayed him, was there. Let's just make it very clear how this all went down. Judas, Judas led the mob. They came to Jesus. Jesus said to them, I am he. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Excuse me? I mean, have you ever read that part before? Does that blow your mind when you read that? I mean, here they come, torches, lanterns, weapons. Who are we after? This one guy, Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, I am he. Everybody falls back to the ground. 
just by the power of the words that are coming out of his mouth, the words that can tell you the future before it happens. This is just another way that Jesus is using these words, I am he, to prove that he's God. Here you see a physical response to his words by these soldiers who are coming to arrest him. So it's like he has to ask them all over again. He has to wait for them to like get back up. Hey, guys, come on. Let's keep going. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus from Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And then they arrest him and then it moves on from there. But I want you to know that I am he. And then when they come to get him, he says, I am he. And they fall over backwards out of the power of the words coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. This is no mere man. Now, what is Jesus referring to when he says, I am he? Well, throughout John, Jesus makes all kinds of I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And and it's referring to, we we often take it back to Exodus 3.14, where God says that his name is I am that I am. But go to Isaiah 41. Now we can turn there with me. Isaiah 41. And look at what it says here. Isaiah, in the Isaiah 40s, God is trying to convince you, if you read Isaiah, if you read what God says through the prophet, God is trying to convince you that he is a unique God and there is no one like him. There are no idols that you should worship. There is nothing else worthy of your praise and adoration. There is nothing else worthy of the pursuit of your life. There is nothing else worthy of you offering your heart, offering your very self up to worship. He is the only one that is worthy. It's very important to God that you would know that he is God and that you would know there is no one else who could possibly be him but him. And that's what he's trying to prove in Isaiah 41. Look at verse 2 with me here. Isaiah 41, verse 2. He's saying, hey, everybody listen to me. Here's what I want to tell you. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. Who can tell you what's going to happen? Generations from now, from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last. I am, what does it say there? I am what? What is Jesus quoting? Well, Jesus, when he says, I am he in John 13, 9, when he says, I am he in John 18, and everybody falls over, he's quoting what the Father says in Isaiah, where God tries to build a case that he's the only God, and one of the ways you can know he's the only God is he's the only one that can tell you this king is going to rise up, and he's going to defeat all these other nations generations before it happens. And so he says things like this. Look at chapter 42, verses 8 and 9. Chapter 42, verses 8 and 9. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things, the things I said were going to happen beforehand. That's what he means by former things. Hey, in the law, I told you some things that were going to happen. Well, now they have come to pass. And new things I now declare. Hey, not only am I going to confirm what I said in the law in these prophets, now in these prophets, I'm going to say some new things that are going to happen even in the future from here. And I'm new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God is trying to prove his case, that he is the one true God. And one of the ways he wants to convince every man, woman, and child is he's telling you the future. Look at chapter 43, verse 9. Chapter 43, verse 9, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Who can tell you what's going to happen before it happens? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. Let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am who? I'm the one who tells the future. And I can tell you the future because I'm outside of time, because I'm sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, because I do whatever I please. I control the future. That's God. And he wants you to believe in him. Go to chapter 44, verses 6 to 8. I would love for you to just read through all of these chapters and hear God telling you who he is. 
In chapter 44, verses 6 to 8, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? You think you should give your life to something else? You think there's somebody better than Jesus to live for? You think you should live for yourself or for so-and-so in your relationship with them or for money or for some kind of pleasure here in this life? Hey, you think you want to worship something else? Well, hey, whatever you want to worship, who is like me, let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. One thing that it should give to us as God's people is a bold witness about the power of the Lord to predict the future. But also, notice what it says here in verse 8, fear not nor be afraid. Let's get this down for point number one. We need to find comfort in knowing Jesus knows, okay? There's comfort for us to have here. That no matter what is going to happen in the future, God has proven he's in control of the future. God has proven he knows what's going to happen in the future. There is nothing uncertain. What may seem to us like chaos and out of control and what's going to happen in America with this election and, and what could happen next in the, in the world with wars and rumors and wars and earthquakes and natural disasters and all these things that have been prophesied in the scripture, evil men getting even worse, people going from bad to even worse all the things that are going to happen before Christ comes back that are prophesied. We might be tempted to be afraid of the future. We might be worried about tomorrow. But hey, just know right now that Jesus already knows what's going to happen tomorrow in your life. In fact, if he was at dinner with you, he'd say, hey, let me tell you, this is probably going to happen. In fact, it is going to happen. And then uh, watch out for this next. He knows. Go back to chapter 41 of Isaiah and look, look at the comfort. See, I, I don't have time to read these whole chapters, but if you were to read the chapters, not only is God trying to convince you that he's God, that he can predict the future, he's trying to comfort you about what is going to happen in the future, that he's in control of it. And he says in Isaiah chapter 41, look with me at verse 8 here. It says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. The offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not. I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If you're a Christian here this morning, when it comes to your future, one thing we've already learned from the Gospel of John is that God holds us in his hand, and he will never let you go, and he's in control of the future, so he can say that, and he can mean it. Fear not. Don't be dismayed. Whatever's going to happen tomorrow, Jesus knows and there's comfort in knowing that he holds you in his hand and he knows the future for every single individual here in this room this morning. We should find great comfort in the fact that God is in control of the future. But the other thing that we better do, if God can tell us the future, if Jesus is the prophet, well, then we better listen to what he says. Let's get that down for number two. You need to listen carefully to everything Jesus commands. Man, if he is the prophet and he's saying, hey, I want you to believe that I am he. There's nobody else you should listen to but me. And I can tell you what Judas is going to do. And I can tell you what Peter's going to do. Do I have your attention now? See, the way that John writes it, this is supposed to draw us in. Because if you read John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, that we're going to be studying all year long, most of it is Jesus talking. Most of it is Jesus telling his people what he expects them to do, giving them commands that he expects them to obey. And if somebody can tell you the future and then they say, so go do this. Go buy this. Go sell this. Make sure you live like this. Hey, I know what's going to happen in the future, so I think the best possible future for you is if you hear me to do this. I think you would listen to that person if you really believe they could tell you the future and what's going to happen to you, and then they told you, do this, you would do it. Man, and I'm talking about the kind of listening that is not the way our kids listen to us. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? I'm not talking about when we hear what somebody says. What do we want? When we say something to our kids, what do we want? We want them to just hear what we say, or do we want them to what? Do what we say. Why aren't these kids obeying me? 
Because you could probably tell your kids a little bit about their future, couldn't you? I mean, you've kind of lived it. They're probably even going to look dangerously close to you as they grow up, right? I mean, you can kind of tell them, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. So do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. The God who knows the future became a man and told you to do things. And you're going to blow it off? You're going to take the time capsule throughout human history of God showing off, and you're going to let it sit on the nightstand all week? When he's trying to talk to you, and he's trying to say, I know the best possible scenario for your life. Do what I tell you. Listen to me. There's going to come a prophet, Moses said, 3,400-something years ago. There's going to be a prophet. And whoever doesn't listen to him, it will be required of them. Well, we know who the prophet is with a capital P. His name is Jesus Christ. And will you listen to him? Go to Matthew 28. Everybody turn to Matthew 28. This is the year of sanctification here at our church, okay? This is what we are here to do as a group of people living in our time, applying the scriptures to the year 2016 in in, uh, Orange County, California. And here's the mission that Jesus gave us. This is what you and I are here to do. And I hope you come back next week as we're going to get real personal about what we're going to do as a church. And we're going to find out who's with us here at this church and, and who's not. But here's the mission that Jesus gave us. In Matthew 28, the last things he said here to his disciples in this gospel, Matthew 28, read with me in verse uh, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the Lord of heaven and earth. I'm going to do whatever I want. I know the future. I could tell it to you right now. Go therefore. Here's what I'm therefore telling you to do. You need to go. And as you're going, make disciples of all nations. And here's what you do when you have somebody who's a disciple. You baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're coming here to Huntington Beach. We're here to help people become Christians. When they become Christians, they get baptized here to the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But then it says this in verse 20, teaching them. What we're supposed to do with these disciples is we teach them to observe all that I have. What does it say there? All that I have what? Commanded you. We're here to teach you to listen to the prophet with a capital P, to hang on his every word, that there would be nothing more important in the consideration of your life than what Jesus has told you to do. And we are studying the biggest collection of the teaching of Jesus that we have in the scripture, five chapters. Would it be then pretty important to be here at church this year as we learn the commands of Jesus Christ that he expects of us? Should we be here maybe ready with a Bible, ready to take notes because we want to listen to the one who can tell us the future and listen to what he tells us to do? I mean, we should be hanging on every word that we hear from the mouth of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would suggest to you that it would be good not just to hear the words and then walk out these doors and maybe process them, maybe not. I would encourage every single soul in this room right now that you should go to a group of people and you should talk about the words of Jesus Christ together, not just about what you heard, but what you are going to do with the words of Jesus Christ. I would encourage every single person here to be a part of one of our fellowship groups. And if you've never been a part of them, they're starting again fresh. They're all brand new this week. It's the time. Compass Connect table right afterwards. You could get plugged in. And you know what we do? We don't, we don't roast the pastor. We don't dissect the sermon. No, you know what we're going to do? We're going to talk about the words of Jesus Christ. And we're going to listen. We're going to observe we're going to obey. We're going to not just hear. We're going to do what the prophet who can tell us the future tells us to do for our future. And if you listen to Jesus and do what he says, it will be good for you to hear the great prophet and obey him. But I've got to say, for those of you who don't believe in Jesus and you're hearing me right now, if you know he's the prophet as it's been presented to you this morning and you do not listen to him, it will be required of you on the last day. God, we come to you and we thank you so much for the amazing work that you have done throughout history to reveal yourself to us through different men in different times that never met, that never knew each other, but all say the same thing. 
Even Zechariah, hundreds of years beforehand, talking about the betrayer and the 30 pieces of silver and throwing them in the temple. Even Jesus calling what Judas and Peter were going to do that night. God, we worship you here this morning as your people. We give you the glory for your work of prophecy among us. And God, we thank you so much that we could have what you inspired Moses to write and David to write and the prophets to write and the apostles to write. And we can compare all these books and we can see how they interact throughout time and we can be convinced that Jesus is he, he is God. And God, I pray that you will forgive us for not being more bold as we tell the world around us that God, you called your own shots. Even there in Isaiah, in chapter 45, verse 1, you mention a name, Cyrus, generations before he was born, and he was the king who would come and defeat Babylon and let your people go back to Jerusalem. You called his name hundreds of years before he was born, over a hundred years before. God, we worship you that you can name people before they're born. You could tell us what their life is gonna be about. God, you know us in that way. And we find comfort in knowing that you know the future, God. Let us not worry. Let us not be anxious for tomorrow. Let us know that tomorrow you will still be holding us in your hands. And so let us draw near to you to listen to what you say, ready to obey. Let us hang on every word that falls from the mouth of Jesus Christ and let us live. He has the words of eternal life. Where else would we go but the one who can tell us our future? Let us listen to Jesus this here at this church, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.